We are in Revelation chapter 13. And if you have been with us through our study of the book of Revelation, you will remember that we're approaching this book from the perspective that there are parallel sections in this book which recount events oftentimes beginning at or around the time of Christ's finished work and then moving forward into the future events, many of them future even to us. We've seen several segments in the book of Revelation already that have followed this pattern, this recapitulation where it's given events from the beginning of Christ's ministry and his or his ascension, his work, and then we have pictures of the final judgment. And here we are in chapter 13. This is in the middle of, I believe it is, the fourth parallel segment in the book of Revelation. In chapter 12, at the beginning of that, we saw things about the birth of Jesus Christ and how there is the dragon and that is Satan and how he is making war against the people of God and how the people of God are standing firm in the word of God and in the testimony of who Christ is and what he has done. And they're facing persecution from the dragon. And we see in chapter 13 then that the dragon has several co-workers who are mentioned here and they're described as beasts and we remember that the book of revelation is highly highly figurative and symbolic in its nature it's apocalyptic literature one of the key features of apocalyptic literature is many many forms of symbolism the numbers are most often symbolic the colors are symbolic the images are symbolic and john who has is recording this is seeing visions and writing down those visions. So we see this evil trinity, the dragon who is Satan, the first beast which rises up out of the sea with its heads and its crowns. And then the second beast, which we'll focus on today in the latter half of Revelation chapter 13, which is a little more gentle in appearance. It looks more like a lamb, and it has just two little horns like a lamb. Have you ever raised lambs, sheep, or goats, and the little ones, they have those little horns, and they just begin to pop out of the head. I remember debudding, dehorning little goats on the farm when I was growing up as a kid, you know, and you take them this hot little tool and you know and do that and then their horns don't grow any further okay but we're talking about here as we look at this second beast that the appearance is softer than the first beast and gentler than the first beast but this second beast is a false prophet and one who leads people astray and gets them to worship an image of the first beast that is set up and is an emissary of satan So we see an evil trinity, the dragon, and these two beasts as contrasted with the true trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's begin reading with Revelation 13 and verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. 
So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here's the patience and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six, six, six. This second beast is called the false prophet in Revelation chapter 19. Notice as part of his description, he has two horns like a lamb, but notice it says he spoke like a dragon. As we've considered this first beast, and I've also preached a message on the Lamb's book of life, we are looking at the book of Revelation as having been written by God to give timeless principles for the people of God who face persecution and oppression by evil peoples, evil governments, evil philosophers throughout the history of the world. And the resounding call that goes through the book of Revelation is to be an overcomer, be one who overcomes. Why? Because we follow the Lamb, but the Lamb is the one who has triumphed, the true Lamb of God. He is the one who has triumphed. He is the one that we see in that glorious throne room vision in Revelation chapter 5 that is worthy to take the scroll from the hand of he who sits on the throne and to open that scroll. And we hear the heavenly host proclaiming resoundingly that all honor and all glory and all power and all dominion belongs to the Lamb. And then we see throughout the book of Revelation this this fearsome conflict that takes place between the lamb and the dragon. And it is clear through the book of Revelation throughout that those who belong to the dragon and have his mark will face the wrath of the lamb. And those who have the lamb and are his and have his mark 
will face the wrath of the dragon. But who wins? Who wins? In this case, you would much rather face the wrath of that dragon than the wrath of the lamb. Because the lamb is the triumphant son of God. And so this book was written to people in the first century A.D. who were facing opposition and persecution and rejection from their own family members and opposition and persecution and rejection from the Roman authorities. And they're being told, hold fast, overcome, hold to the testimony of Christ. He has triumphed. The victory is his. You will face persecution. You will face opposition. You will face suffering. You will face hardship. Don't be surprised when any of that happens. Do not believe for a moment. Western Christians in the United States of America that God has promised you the American dream. That would be a lie. God has not promised you. Health, wealth, peace, and prosperity. God has assured you that all those who stand godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Jesus said to his disciples, they have hated me, they will hate you. And then Jesus told them in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice and be exceedingly glad when you are persecuted and reviled for my name's sake. We should expect that. And for Christians, it has been the norm throughout the history of the church. And it is the norm for true Christians today. And we sometimes think because we've been sheltered here in the Bible Belt of the United States of America, that that is the norm around the world. Nonsense. Nonsense. Go to North Korea. Go to China. Go to Saudi Arabia. Go to Iraq. Go to Syria. Go to the European countries, and we're going to talk about that today, and take a stand and say men are biologically different than women and have different skills and have different roles in society, have different roles in the church and different roles in the home, and you need to adhere to that and see if they just pat you on the head and said, well, we'll agree to disagree. All right? It's not the norm for Christians to have religious liberties recognized and it's decreasingly the norm in our nation we're going to talk about that a little bit today book of revelation is written for people around the world for all time and gives many principles for how to stand for the truth and what to expect well this these beasts i agree with william hendrickson and this has been a common position Amongst believers and within the church for, for millennia, for millennia, that these beasts are symbolic, they're representative of a couple of different things. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, More Than Conquerors, says this. Chapter 13 shows us the agents, instruments, or tools which the dragon uses in his attack upon the church. Two beasts are described. The first is a monster of incredible horror. The second has a harmless appearance and for that very reason is even more dangerous than the first. The first beast comes up out of the sea. The second rises from the land. The first is Satan's hand. The second is the devil's mind. 
The first represents the persecuting power of Satan operating in and through the nations of the world and their governments. The second symbolizes the false religions and philosophies of this world. Both these beasts oppose the church throughout this dispensation, yet the apostle describes them in terms that indicate the form which they assumed during the closing decade of the first century A.D. Okay, so the two beasts, what does the first beast represent? It comes up out of the sea in the scriptures. What is the precedent for the sea? The sea describes sinful humanity. The book of Isaiah talks about the the heathen of this world boiling like the waves of the sea. You see, we have precedents for these images in the Old Testament. Revelation is filled with allusions to the Old Testament scriptures. So the sea represents the, the nations of this world and wicked people in the nations. This beast rises up out of the sea. It has horns symbolizing power. It has crowns symbolizing authority. It represents governmental systems in particular that stand in opposition to God and to the people of God. And it says, notice that it has, as it were, a mortal wound that was healed. What does this indicate? It indicates a recurrence of totalitarian, in particular, governmental regimes which oppose the people of God and oppose God and his ways. Is it not the case that over and over again through history, one rises up and then as soon as it is knocked down, another rises up to take its place? This second beast then represents the false philosophies and religious worldviews that push people toward and are used by corrupt and often totalitarian governmental regimes to cause people to bow and worship that governmental authority. And is there not a recurring pattern through history? And we're going to talk about this for just a moment. Hendrickson, as you noted, possibly said that what John describes here was what was taking place in the first century. And I'm going to read you some things about the Roman Empire that shows this so crystal clearly, okay? That you have these wicked governmental powers, and behind those powers, there is a philosophy, an evil philosophy. And in that evil philosophy, there is this call to bow to that governmental authority, or you will face. Economic hardship. Notice there it says forced to take the number and then what happens so you can't buy, sell, or trade. What happens with wicked totalitarian regimes? They have a philosophy undergirding them that tries to get you to bow and to worship the authority. And if you do not bow and worship the authority, what do they do? First of all, they cut off your ability to make a living. And then potentially they cut off your head. Okay, we see that throughout history. We're going to look at examples of this from history. It's exactly what was going on in the Roman Empire at the time John is writing. Okay, I'm not going to preach about the the mark of the beast and the number. I've done a sermon on that in great detail. I just want to point out a couple points real quickly. The scriptures say that all those who are written in the Lamb's book of the life are those who do not take the mark of the beast. 
And it says all those who take the mark of the beast worship the beast and his image and ultimately are cast in the lake of fire. That tells me a couple things. One, true Christians will never take the mark of the beast and they'll never worship the beast. Two, you cannot involuntarily receive the mark of the beast because it involves consciously choosing to worship and to hold to a false worldview. Okay? So we can all breathe a sigh of relief. Mark of the beast cannot be RFID chips, you know, and you, you uh, bump your head in an accident, go into the hospital, you're unconscious, and they shoot the little thing into your right arm, and you have no idea that it's in there. No way. It can't be. The mark of the beast, it says, is taken by those who worship the beast and his image. Symbolic. The book of Revelation is symbolic. I preached on this. Um, my message is on sermon audio. If you didn't hear it or like to go back and review it, please go ahead and do that. The fact of the matter is we have a precedent for these types of marks and sealings already. When you look at the book of Ezekiel, there are a group of people there and Ezekiel sees a vision and there are people who are sealed on their forehead. They're marked on their forehead as the Lord's people who will not face the persecution that is to come upon Jerusalem because these were people who were repentant of sins and weeping over the sins of the city. They were non-idolaters. Okay? And in Revelation chapter 14, we see there are 144,000 and they have sealed on their foreheads. They're sealed by the Lamb. Those are representative of the people of God. You see, everyone bears a mark. You have the mark of God on you as his children, or if you are not his children, you have the mark of the beast on you. See, two groups of people. You're either for the beast or you're for the lamb. And you are marked as belonging to the beast or marked as belonging to the lamb. If you stand for the lamb... You can expect to face economic hardship and increasing pressure, depending on your governmental situation, to bow to the wicked governmental authorities at the threat of being fined, losing your occupation, and potential imprisonment or potential death. And in many nations right now, of course, there are people who are dying because they refuse to bow to the beast, okay? But consider this with me for just a moment. What was going on here? And what's going on in history? Beast number two looks harmless, but speaks like the devil. In the age in which this was written, there was the Caesar cult. Caesar, and the various Caesars that arose were declared to be divine. And under threat of law, citizens were required to burn incense or to pay homage to the Caesars as divine. Who were the Caesars? The Caesars were the head of state. You had to worship the head of the state the head of an oppressive governmental system. Just burn incense to Caesar as divine, all will be well. Worship the head of the state. 
bow to the image of the first beast, you see. Also, you are required to worship from the pantheon of the patron gods. Burn incense to them. What happened if you did not do so? You would be possibly imprisoned. You would be excluded from the trade guilds so that you had a hard time buying or selling, you see. Philip Harland on his website says this, followers of Jesus, like others devoted to the God of the Judeans, were among the most odd inhabitants of the ancient Mediterranean world when it comes to their attitudes toward the gods of others. Virtually everyone agreed that there were many gods in the Roman Empire and that each home, association, city, ethnic group, or empire might have its own favorite deities without denying others. Few beyond those who honored the Judean god, I don't know that this man is a Christian who writes this, he's a historian, were concerned with denying the legitimacy of other gods or with questioning other people's practice of honoring their own gods, even if they look down upon people from another ethnic group or place. Monotheism, having one god that you worship, was not the norm in antiquity, he continues. It was an anomaly. As a result, some Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Egyptians, and others had difficulty making sense of the Judean focus on one god, which seemed to them the equivalent of denying the gods altogether i.e. atheism. So early Christians were dubbed as atheists by the Roman state because the Romans couldn't conceive of not worshiping multiple gods. They were polytheistic, right? They had all all of these different gods, Diana and all these others, you know, and you bow to them. And I get all the Greek gods and the Roman gods all mixed up in my head, you know, can't keep them all straight, so I'm not even going to try. Some of you may know more about that than me. But you understand what I'm saying, right? Multiple gods, you worship these gods. They had patron saints, okay? So you had gods which were the, were, were the gods of the, the earth and the crops and the harvest. You had gods that were the gods of the wind and the rain and the storm. And you had gods that were... And so what was required was that you, you would worship certain of these gods. And what was expected was if you gave good offerings to them and showed you're devoted to them, then they're going to bless... Economically, they're going to bless the weather. They're going to bless all these things. And the people believed that if you weren't doing that, then the gods would get angry at you, and so you'd have an earthquake. Or they'd get angry at you, and there'd be a big fire. Or they'd get angry at you, and and uh, there'd be a drought, or whatever else. Okay, that's how they thought. That's how they functioned. But Christians are like, no, there's one God, and they're like, what? Right? Can't comprehend it. one God. The Romans are like, one God. These guys must be atheists. They don't believe in God. So they get dubbed as atheists. Um, Our author continues, despite other ways in which they made a home in the Greco-Roman world, this is where the earlier followers of Jesus were at odds with surrounding culture. Now, at the time of Jesus, Judaism was the religio licita, the legal religion. Okay, the Romans... In order to keep the Jews from constantly, you know, revolting against them, said, we're going to allow you to practice your monotheism. But then what began to, to happen as there was increasing turmoil amongst the Jewish people and more and more zealots. And then Christians who were initially Jews who were converted to the faith 
began to proclaim Jesus, the Romans are trying to sort this out. Wait a minute, these are Jews, but now they're talking about this guy, Jesus, and that's not Judaism like we've known it. And so the Christians begin to be distinguished and they're not protected by the laws of religio lucida because they're stepping outside of that and saying it's Jesus, not just the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jesus is the son of the true God, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But we're not saying just like the Jews, it's only the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and confusing the whole matter because Remember, Paul would go in and preach this one, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Let me tell you about who he is and tell you about his son who has come. Right. You understand what I'm saying? So. The Jew, the Christians then move outside of the protection that was in place. That's always the case for Christians. It's really an anomaly in the United States of America that Christianity has had any protected status in any way, shape, or form throughout history. And the fact that we're beginning to lose that to a certain degree is showing that we're moving back toward the norm, not that we're moving away from it. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? Well... He goes on, it it could be a source of harassment, abuse, or even violence. In times of trouble or catastrophe, fingers began to point at those who had failed to honor the gods properly. Fingers began to point at the atheists, you see. The gods were punishing people through natural disasters such as earthquakes and fires because the gods were not being honored fittingly and atheists like the followers of Jesus were being blamed for that. So, What happens in history? Nero, and I believe it was Tacitus, Roman historian, writes about this. It was suspected that Nero actually caused a fire in one part of the city of Rome because Nero wanted to rebuild that area. So he's like, well, let's just start a fire there, burn it all down, and then we can rebuild it. But then Nero blames the Christians. And they're an easy scapegoat. Why? Because they don't, they don't, Pay homage to the gods. The gods get mad and they start fires when people don't pay homage to them. The Christians don't pay homage to them. It must be the fault of the Christians. So Nero then takes Christians, dips them in tar, lights them on fire to light his garden and his parties. You see the wickedness of this, but you see what's going on? Christians refuse To listen to the second beast, the false philosophy of Rome, they refused to bow down and worship the image of the first beast, Nero Caesar. They get blamed then and they get persecuted and many of them die. Or they refuse to listen to the first beast and his philosophy about these false gods bringing prosperity if you'll worship them. They will not worship, then they are punished, kicked out of the trade guilds, and now they have a hard time buying or selling. You see, does this not fit so well, the history with the book of Revelation and the people it was actually being written to? You see? Well, consider this. 
Pliny the Younger was governor of the northern province of Asia Minor, circa 110. In his epistle, he writes this, and I quote, Those who denied that they were or had been Christians and called upon the gods with the usual usual formula, reciting the words after me, and those who offered incense and wine before your, he's writing to Ipper Trajan, before your image, which I had ordered to be brought forward for this very purpose, along with the regular statutes of the gods, all such I considered acquitted, especially as they cursed the name of Christ, which it is said bona fide Christians cannot be induced to do. Wow, you see this? This Roman governor of this province literally brings an image of the emperor Trajan and images of other gods. He calls people who are professing Christians in before them, before him, and says, worship these and curse the name of Christ. Otherwise, you're going to be punished at law. What did... What did the second beast do had an image made of the first beast and all those who would not worship the first beast were to be killed was this doesn't that fit (laughs) amazing correlation here but notice what he said here he said all those who would curse he says I considered acquitted, and notice this statement, especially as they curse the name of Christ, which it is said bona fide Christians cannot be induced to do. There are bona fide Christians out there, folks. And when they're called to bow and worship the beast, they will say, I will not worship And they suffer the penalties of law. But yet, they are rewarded by our God. So, this cycle, the philosophy of paganism, in this case, the second beast, compels all to worship an image of the first beast, evil governmental powers and authorities, with the punishment of death as an atheist in the Roman Empire. What does Scripture teach us concerning our responsibilities? Look at Colossians chapter 2. First of all, the scriptures tell us not to be deceived by empty philosophies. Do not be deceived by empty philosophies. Colossians chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul is mentioning to those in Colossa that he is burdened for them, that he's not seen them, he's not met them personally, but he wants their hearts to be encouraged and knit together in love, he's saying, and that they would know the gospel of Christ and in Christ all the Treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Verse 3, and then he says this, beginning in verse 4. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Persuasive words like the second beast. It's soft in appearance, but it speaks like a dragon. 
For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Rooted in Christ, walking in him, established in the faith. Why in the world do we come here and and go deep into the scriptures and analyze our current circumstances and look at the context of scripture and emphasize the gospel and how it applies to all of life because we want to be deeply rooted in Christ and we want to be established in the faith. Why? So that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You realize that we live in ages where we're being bombarded by false philosophies all the time. And if we buy into those, we are toast. We are, we are walking targets and we're going to fall. We'll get picked off one by one unless we go deep, unless we know the truth of Christ and stand in him. Unless we do deep theology so that we can understand the wicked philosophies of this life. If we don't do this, we will die. We will die. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. We don't just do it so we can walk around with our heads down. We do it so we can rejoice. And Jesus says crazy, radical things like when they persecute you for my name's sake, blessed and happy are you. Rejoice. Do you, re, do you rejoice if you tell somebody the truth and they start cussing you out and say all kinds of vile and evil things about you? Or do you walk away with your head down? I can't believe that I had to go through that. Oh, I'm so persecuted. Jesus says, rejoice! <laughs> How can we rejoice? Because one, the very evidence that we're able to stand and proclaim the truth in love in the midst of clear opposition and persecution and hardship to ourselves shows that we're denying ourselves and that is an assurance that we're a child of God if we're willing to do that but above all we're bringing glory to the name of God we're glorifying Jesus and we just did and the fact that a Christ hater just hated us means that he's identifying us with Christ and we're identified with Christ and can we not rejoice in that can we not rejoice? Now, obviously, we don't rejoice that they're a Christ hater. But at the same time, how is it that the martyrs would go to the stake, literally, where they are tied up? And if you've ever burnt yourself a little bit, you know it hurts. And they are literally lit on fire until they die as their flesh melts off of them. And as they're tied there, they're singing hymns of praise to God. How could that happen? The power and the grace of God alone can move somebody to that. And if we cannot be faithful in the little things, how can we be faithful in the big things? We are called then to abound in it with thanksgiving. And here's this grave warning. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to christ for in him 
dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. It's all wrapped up in Jesus and who he is, and not being swayed away from him toward any false gospel, whether it is the false gospel of the far right, and that's on my side, right? Your side right over here, right? The far right or the far left, both are preaching a false gospel in our nation. We're centered on Christ and not being deceived. So beware, brethren, beware. And what are we to do? And what is an example that we have? Look at Daniel chapter 3. We've already read about Daniel himself and what he did in our call to worship. What about his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Even well before the book of Revelation was written, these scenarios of the beast and worshiping the image of the beast were still present. What happens here? An image. An image of who? An image of the emperor of the realm. And what are the people called to do? Bow and worship that image. You see this cycle throughout history? Throughout history. What happens in Daniel chapter 3? How do they... How do they approach this scenario? Nebuchadnezzar the king had made an image of gold. And everyone was gathered and they were commanded that when they heard the sound of the music and all the musical instruments, that they were to bow down and worship that image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Verse 6. Therefore, at that time... After this happened, the first time, and people are bowing down, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that whoever does not fall down should be cast into this furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 12, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. And realize this. If you are three men in a crowd of thousands and you alone are standing while all else bow, do you think that you're not going to be noticed? (laughs) You're going to stand out in the crowd, literally, right? At that point is the point. It's the crisis point. It's the crunch point. Rubber meets the road. Their faith is put to the test. Am I going to be an idolater or am I going to feign idolatry? You know, I'm going to go ahead, which would in essence be idolatry because they're showing that they love themselves and their own safety more than they love God. So they're worshiping self, even if they pretend to bow down and worship the image at that point. The only godly choice for them is to stand and to stand knowing that they could die for it. Wow. Wow. So they're called before the king and he is enraged and furious in verse 13 and calls them before him. And he says, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now we're going to go through this again. And you're supposed to worship. If you don't, you're going to be cast into the fiery furnace And notice this, he says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? 
You see his arrogance. And this is the king that God strikes down later on. In his arrogance, he looks out at all his providence and says, this is all by my hands. Even after this experience that we see the outcome of. And God strikes him down and he's eating grass in a field like a cow. I mean, God can take the mightiest man on the face of the globe and strike him down instantly so he's acting like a wild animal. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes back to his senses, he proclaims rightly, he says, that among the inhabitants of the earth, there are none can, that can stay God's hand or say unto him, what doest thou? He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he, God, doeth according to his will. But right now, he hasn't gotten that message. And so what do these guys do? Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Everybody begins to bow. You know that the penalty for not bowing is death. What are you going to do? You can imagine what would be racing through your mind at that time. You can imagine all of the temptations, the justifications for bowing. I have I have kids. I have I have a family. I have grandchildren. If I'm dead, I can't uh, I can't influence people in this ungodly nation for Christ any longer. You know, so I'm going to have all the things that could be running through your mind. I want to live. I don't want to die. I wonder what it hurts to, or what it feels like to burn to death. Put yourself in their shoes. What do they do? They trust the Lord. They refuse to bow. What do they say to the king? They say, oh, okay, king. Yeah, all right. Hey, I got an idea, though. Before we go this far, let's let's talk. Let's have a latte. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. what 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 do they what do they do? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Wow. They're like, we, we don't even have to answer you. We're resolved. We know what we're doing. We are confident in our God. We don't even, we don't even have to answer you. We don't have to. We do not, we do not have to. Depend upon or submit to your authority in this matter or rely on your authority in this matter whatsoever. We are not dependent upon you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O King. Their reliance is on the Lord, but notice what they say next. Is it possible that somebody could say, God's going to do a miracle. God's going to do a miracle. I'm not going to get burned. I'm not going to get burned. It's not going to hurt. It's all going to be good. So I trust him because I know he's going to keep me from any pain or suffering or hardship in this life. You know, there are plenty of people 
that are buying into a false gospel and they're saying, I'm going to worship and trust God because I know if I do that well enough, he will keep me from any hardship in this life. That's a false gospel. Do they buy into that false gospel? Absolutely not, because what do they say next? But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Do your worst, is what they're saying. We will not bow God is sovereign over protecting us. If he decides to do so, that is within his sovereign will. We are going to trust him. If he decides to slay us, we will not disobey him. Praise God. (laughs) Does this not give glory to God? Their words are enshrined throughout history for us to read. And we can worship God that they exampled a reliance on the living God. And what happened in that instance, the fire is heated ten times hotter. The very guards that threw them in are killed because the fire is so hot. And then they're staring in. Didn't we throw three guys in? But it's it looks like four guys walking around in there. And one looks like the son of God. And they come out and their clothes don't even smell like smoke. Is that a promise to Christians in North Korea that you won't die in the concentration camp? Is that a promise to Christians in China? Is that a promise to Christians in Iraq or Syria or wherever else? No, it's not. The faith of these men is displayed in that they knew who God was and they had a full picture of God. He can deliver us if he chooses. Even if he doesn't, we'll be faithful to him. How could they say we'll be faithful to him? Because they trusted him and they loved him. If their trust was in the God who was going to save them from all harm, they would never have said the latter part, but they trusted him. And he did spare them. He did spare them. Miraculously so. You know, think about think about history. How many of how many of you have seen the picture Black and white photo, iconic photograph of a group of Germans in, most of them men in 1930s style suits and, and hats. And they're all standing with a salute to Hitler. And there is one man in the crowd And as all the rest, and I won't do the salute, (laughs) but as all the rest are standing there with the Sieg Heil, their hand raised in salute to the Nazi party, Adolf Hitler is there. It was the dedication of a German shipping vessel. Adolf Hitler is on the scene. They're saluting. And there is one man in the crowd, and he stands with arms crossed. Have you seen that picture? If you haven't, look it up. There are some who... We'll post that on Facebook and he'll be circled in red with an arrow pointing to him and it says, be this man. Be this man. Of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, this man, August Landmesser, had actually joined the Nazi party in 1931. Why? Because he believed it was it would further his economic interests. How did how did Hitler rise to prominence in the first place. It was the promise of economic prosperity. 
and helping to rebuild Germany right after World War One and whatnot. And Hitler comes on the scene and he's got good economic ideas so-called for the country. And so people start to follow him because of his economic principles. But at the same time, behind the scenes, he's preaching this wicked philosophy. And people aren't paying attention to that because their eyes have the dollar signs and they're focused on the money. How often do we hear that in voting in the United States of America? Well, we have a candidate here who supports late-term abortions, literally sucking the brains out of little innocent children. But he's got good economic policies or she's got good economic policies and it's going to help the country. And we're not electing a pastor in chief anyway, you know, and, and we can't legislate morality which is one of the stupidest statements on the face of this thinking earth. You know, put that, put that at the top. That's like in my top 10. You can't legislate morality. Thou shalt not kill. Is that morality? Come on, people, wake up. All legislation is based on a, a worldview which has moral presuppositions behind it. Okay? And so people vote... For a murderer who promotes the slaughter by law, legalized by law, of innocent children in the womb because they want to pad their pocketbooks. They bow to the beast. The evil philosophy underlying economic prosperity, wealth, I want to be wealthy, or it's a philosophy like the problems in this world are caused by poverty. You know those arguments of the left. What is the problem in the world? It's poverty. If we solve the economic, the problem of economic conditions in this world, since people are inherently good, that's a presupposition, people are inherently good, it's their environment that is pressuring them toward making wrong choices. If we just get their environment straightened out, then... They're going to make the right choices. But you see, that's a totally unbiblical worldview. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. People are inherently evil and wicked. An environment does not determine. Environment can affect, but it does not cause or determine. And so you see there are evil philosophies behind the legislation that takes place. And then people make choices based on evil, evil philosophies. They listen to the second beast and they bow and worship the first beast. You see? That's happened in Europe. It's happened in Canada. It's happening in the United States. Well, this man, August Landmesser, in this iconic photo had joined the Nazi party, but then he fell in love with a Jewish woman. At the time that picture was taken, he was in a relationship with this Jewish woman. I don't know that this man was a Christian. The stand that he took was a right stand. I don't know that he was a Christian or ever became a Christian. He desired to be married to Irma Eckler, but was prohibited by law because this fascist regime, far-right regime, 
had said that there would be no intermixing of the races. And the Jew, Jewish people were, you know, a targeted and despised race. They sought to f- flee the country in 1937. They were captured and they were charged under the Nazi racial laws with uh, attempting to pollute the pure race. They managed to get out of that charge. And a couple years later, though, she was imprisoned. And in 1942, it is believed she was executed at Bernberg Euthanasia Center by the Nazis. And he lived on after that. But what about our day and age? What about our day and age? Totalitarianism, whether it's on the far right or on the far left, has slain over 100 million people in the 20th century. Whether it's on the far right, a nationalism, fascism like the Nazi regime in Germany, or whether it's on the far left like Stalinism in Russia and then the USSR. These ungodly philosophies and worldviews which then ultimately call you to bow to the state because the state bears the sword and then people either do not bow or they resist and then they're slain for it has been alive and well throughout history. What's going on in our day and age? What's going on in North America like in Canada? Hate speech laws and anti-discrimination laws that are put on the books. What has happened? You have a you have a a class of people who are classified by a behavioral preference. LGBTQ now they just say plus because they keep adding things to it all the time. And what are these? These are behavioral preferences. And and what has happened? What has happened? They have been able, they fought long and hard, and they have been able to get those behavioral preferences. And when we look at the scriptures, we say sinful and wicked behavioral preferences. Does the Bible not say that it's an abomination before God for a man to lie down with a man? Does the Bible not say in Romans chapter 1, That women burning in their lust towards one another bring upon them the wrath of God. Yes, it does. Does the Bible not say that God created them male and female? And he's built it into our very biology. Yes, it does. But what have they done? They've been able to to ride, like in the United States, on some of the good things that took place in the civil rights movement. And they've been able to label... Now, these behavioral preferences as matters of civil liberty and protection, and now they are listed as protected statuses in civil right codes across America at the various state level, the various states. You remember when that battle was was raging. You remember, there were some who stood up and said, even some in the black community, for instance, and said, this this is a totally different matter. I'm I'm black, 
that has nothing to do with my preference or my choice. I was born this way. No matter of preference or choice whatsoever, and it is not a matter of civil rights for someone to, you know, have the practice of homosexuality which oftentimes you can't even tell by looking at someone if they are or are not. But these black pastors are standing up and saying, you look at me and you can tell I'm black. <laughs> it's not something that can be, can be hidden or covered up or anything like that. So the battle raged and we lost the battle because the worldview was already established. The church had already failed in her duties to teach the truth. The nation had already moved toward the left in this issue. And now, enshrined in law, the various state levels are these anti-discrimination codes, which include sexual orientation as a preferred and a protected status. And you know what, folks? I'm not going to pull any punches. That's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's foolish. It's wicked. And listen to their arguments. Their arguments are things like equality, and you have to have equality. And, and as, long as, as long as it's consensual, you, it needs to be protected. And it needs to be honored. Wake up! Where's that going to lead? I'm not going to get graphic here, but if you're listening to me, you know Follow that logic. Where does it go? As long as it's consensual, it's okay. Follow that logic. You know what? Over the, over the decades, as these battles have been fought, and we've lost and lost and lost and lost, the second beast has been whispering with its philosophies. There's no slippery slope here. There's no slippery slope. You guys are just, you guys are just alarmist and extremists. And so what have they said? I saw a meme posted on Facebook and it says there is no slippery slope. Conservatives were. And then it says incorrect that. And they mark out the in with a little red line. Here's some of these battles that we've lost. And and people have said this is what it's going to lead to. And everybody and the, those, you know, that hate God have said, oh, no, no, it won't lead to that. Birth control would lead to more promiscuity. No, 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 that that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. I don't mean to get into a big debate. There, there are, I believe, proper forms of birth control for proper reasons, but just looking at the broadest context, and we know some of the early birth controls were abortifacients, and a lot of people didn't even realize it, and they're taking these, and their babies are being killed in the womb, okay? Birth control will lead to more promiscuity. No, it won't. No, it won't. Has it? You bet it has. Promiscuity would lead to an STD epidemic. No, it won't. No, it won't. You bet it has. No-fault divorce would lead to more broken homes. No, it won't. No, it won't. <laughs> you bet it has. The children of, of divorced families are going to be permanently harmed. It's going to be difficult for them. No, no, no. It, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. No, no issues. No harm. Abortion would make men less responsible for sex. No, no. No, it won't. Yes, it has. Pornography is psychological and socially destructive. No, it's not. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Striking down anti-sodomy laws would lead to gay civil unions. No, they won't. No, they won't. Yes, they have. Gay civil unions would lead to gay marriage. No, that won't happen. Yes, it did. 
Gay marriage would lead to prosecution of dissenters. Yes, it has. Jack Phillips, Masterpiece Cake Shop, waiting for the Supreme Court hearing. Ruling sometime coming up, even in our own nation. Gay marriage would lead to the deconstruction of gender. No, it won't. No, it won't. Yes, it has. Gay marriage would lead to polyamory and open marriages. No, it won't. Yes, it has. College hookup culture would lead to rape. No, that no, not going to happen. Yes, it has. Transgenderism would lead to trans children. No, that won't. Yes, it has. And then we ask the question, where are we going from here? You see? And we keep losing these battles one step at a time. And people keep bowing to the beast over and over again. Where are we at in the United States of America? I wish I could give you a rosy picture for the future. I don't see it. Even like this case, and, and bear with me for just a moment while we wrap this up, okay? This case, Jack Phillips Masterpiece Cake Shop. The Colorado Commission on Civil Rights rules that because Jack Phillips refuses to specifically design a gay marriage-themed wedding cake for two of his previous customers who want to get married, that he has violated the civil rights codes and he is going to be economically punished for it by being fined. Does that sound anything like Revelation and what we've been looking at? The philosophy underlying this, that people should be free to have whatever sexual preference they want and engage in whatever sexual abomination they want to engage in, and that's all good, that's all okay. You know, underlying philosophy enshrined in law, you bow and worship the image of the beast, or we are going to mark you and... Or, or we, if you don't take this mark and bow to us, you're going to be economically punished. Okay? And, and get this. You know, you read the articles and you read the articles written by the pro progressives and the leftists about this case. They consistently misrepresent this case. They say that Jack Phillips refused to sell a cake to this gay couple. That is absolutely not the whole picture. Jack Phillips said to this couple... You are welcome to buy any cake that is in my store and on display. He said, but I cannot in good conscience specifically design for you a gay wedding themed cake. And you want to know how inconsistent these wicked people are who are promoting him being punished at law. If that were a black cake decorator and a clan member went in there and said, I want you to specifically design a cake that would represent, you know, and have uh, uh, this can be used in our next clan meeting. And the black guy said, no way am I going to do that. They would stand and defend him and say that is his religious liberty. That is his freedom of expression, liberty. You know, he is allowed to do that across the board. You see, it is a complete inconsistency. And it's a wickedness before God. There, I, I, wanna, I want to strongly urge us, we read the scriptures, don't be taken in by wrong philosophies, okay? 
both on the far right and the far left. There are evil philosophies. On the far right, you have a a true racism, which is so often promoted. And And a nationalism that exalts the state as God and it looks at things like Traditional values oftentimes, but what it's trying to do is it's trying to enshrine a particular era sometimes in United States history. And it's trying to put it's trying to recreate that in our nation. But ultimately, what they are doing is that they are bowing down and they're worshiping and they are promoting the gospel of kinism, racism, heritage And that is what's screaming out in their message, even if they proclaim to be Christians. It's not screaming out that we are all one in Christ Jesus. It is screaming out. We are superior. We are great. And we need to protect ourselves and enshrine this in law so that we can protect ourselves. And they feel the attack because the attack is on the left. And the attack on the left, the the leftist, is... This grid, okay? Think about this. There there are different grids that the leftists and those on the alt-right and extreme right are looking at the world. What's the grid on the left? It's It's the grid of oppressors and the oppressed. It's the grid of victimhood, victimization. According to those on the far left, if you are in a... If your economic status is less than someone else, you're inherently a victim. And the one who is wealthier than you is your oppressor in virtue of you just having less than them. Why why is it that we get all of this going on and all these laws being put in place about gender equality and all this kind of stuff? It's because what the left looks at, the leftists, they say, victim, oppressor. Those that are in the 1%, Those that are wealthiest in the nation, in virtue of being wealthier, they are oppressing those who have less just because they have more automatically because everything they look at is filtered through the grid of victim and oppressor. Everything. So they'll look at things like, well, you know, only like uh, 5%, it's only like 5% women CEOs in the top uh, Fortune 500 companies. And they'll say that inequality shows that women are oppressed. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak uh, calmly about that. That's nonsense. <laughs> it's nonsense. Could it be the case that women have equal opportunities to seek out those positions, but that women less than men don't want those positions? And you know what? Here's something that is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. I watched, I watched a, a documentary in... Norwegian. No, I don't. I don't speak Norwegian, but it had nice sub, subtitles for me. I appreciated that. There's this uh, gender equality paradox that's showing up in Norway and other Scandinavian countries, and it's just blowing the minds of the uh, social constructionists who are trying to socially engineer society because they say there are all these inequalities, and, and if there's ever an inequality, that's bad. And we have to, by law, force equality of outcome. They're not about equality of opportunities. They're not about 
saying by law we want to give equal opportunities to different people, they're about forcing equality of outcome. In other words, if women under any circumstances, you look at all women in the nation and they're making less than men, that's an inequality. And we have to make sure that women are making the same amount as men, regardless of how many hours women are working in the workplace, what type of jobs women like and they're pursuing. None of that matters to them. It's inequality and women are victims and we have to do this. Okay? But think about this. Norway, Finland, Sweden. These are the most egalitarian countries on the face of the earth. You know what that means? These are countries who have leveled the playing field by law. No inequalities of opportunity. Women and men can choose to do whatever they want to do. You know what is blowing the minds of these social construction engineers? Only 10% of women in Norway choose to be engineers. Only 10% of men in Norway choose to be nurses. When they are free to choose and they don't have cultural pressure on them, they don't have social pressure on them, and they don't have legal pressure on them, they're getting farther apart and there's more disparity and less equality in their choices. <laughs> What's up with that? All of their thinking was if we could only construct the society and get it all, get it all perfectly balanced, then you're going to have 50-50. Women are going to choose this 50%. Men are going to choose this. It's all going to be equal. It's all going to level out. The opposite is happening. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Of course, coming from a biblical worldview, I say, well, duh. You know, they're doing all, all these studies, you know, where they're, they're taking little nine-month-old babies and they're putting toys in front of these nine-month-olds. And some of them are toys like toy cars and, you know, more masculine, if you will, and others are dolls and, and things like that. Predominantly, the boys are moving towards the masculine toys and the girls are moving towards the others. Well, that's just social pressure, right, for a nine-year-old? Has that nine-year-old been taught this is what boys should do and this is what girls should do? No. They, they take one-day-old babies. One day old. They put a picture of a person's face in front of them, and then they put a, a mechanical device in front of them. The boys predominantly focus in on and stay focused longer on the mechanical device than the face. One-day-old biblical worldview, God created males and females, and he created them differently, with different skills, different talents. Again, this is broad generalization. It's not wrong if a girl likes engineering. No, of course not. It's not wrong if, it's not wrong if, a, if a guy is really in tune to, to people and you know can empathize with people very... No, not, not at all. Not at all. I'm not saying that's wrong. But I'm saying the fact of the matter is, God created us differently. <laughs> And wicked people with an unbiblical worldview are trying to socially engineer societies in such a way that if you do not bow to them and their reasoning that they want to take away your livelihood, they want to silence and shame you, you're going to have to go through sensitivity training. Right? I mean, we've seen all of this coming. It's been coming. It's going on. And it's only going to get worse. Even with this case like this Masterpiece Cake Shop, it's already enshrined in law and we've lost the battle when we have designated sexual orientation as a civil class or a civil rights issue. 
That's not going to be overturned in the Supreme Court. I don't see any way, shape, or form that the civil court, the Supreme Court is going to rule that sexual orientation is not a protected class. So what might they do? About the only victory we could get out of a case like this is if they say that in, in a very narrow instance where somebody is involved in an occupation where they have a, where they have a freedom of expression, they're not going to have to be or forced to be doing their art in such a way that violates their conscience. We might get that. We might not even get that. We don't know, right? But we're not going to get what's needed. Not at this point. So what's the message to us? Be ready. You think it's not going to affect you? You think it's not going to affect me? I stood up the first year I was in the pulpit and said, I fully expect one day to be fined or arrested for standing up here and preaching that homosexuality is a sin. I haven't been arrested yet, but within my lifetime, if we follow this trajectory that we're on, it's more likely than not that that's going to happen. Do you think it's not going to happen to you that you could get fined, that you could be trying to run out of business and out of the workplace if you take a stand for Christ? Don't think for a moment that that could not happen. But I want to encourage you, if it does happen, rejoice. That's what Jesus says. Don't idolize safety. Are we going to take a stand? As a congregation here of people, are we going to take a stand? Are we going to be those who stand out in the crowd and when the pictures are taken, we will be the ones who are not bowing? To the beast. We are the ones who will not salute the wicked, evil empire. Are we going to take a stand? Yes, we're going to take a stand, right? Do you stand with me in this? <laughs> will you pray for me that I stand? I need your prayers. Did, you know, do I, do I want to be arrested? Do I want to be fined? You know, do I want to be in a position where I... I can't look after my boys or my wife. I don't I don't want that. But we need to pray for one another. And we need to keep going deep in the word of God so we can analyze all of these evil philosophies and know when it's time to stand, right? Do we stand together in this? Let me tell you, we have to have God's grace in this. Or we'll fall flat every time. We do not stand in our own strength. We need to desperately cry out to God that he would give us grace to stand. Father, we do cry out to you and we plead with you. Give us grace to stand. I, I believe, Father, that we would be fools to think that this is not right around the corner for us. But we know that by your your grace and your work that things can change. And so we pray that you will raise up people to stand and to fight these battles at the legal level. Thank you for those who are already doing so and pray that you'll strengthen and encourage them. Pray for us, though, that we will not live in fear, but we will live confidently, boldly, firmly. And when necessary, aggressively proclaiming the truth and refusing to bow to any but you are God.
Give us this grace. We desperately need you in this. In Jesus' name, amen.